There it is. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I, I think we're in kind of a very exciting time in the world. I think we're in a very exciting place as a church. And uh, uh, I'm just glad you're here because I think God has something for all of us tonight. He always does. But um, I think he wants us to see him in a new way tonight. And um, not that he's any different, but that our view of him sometimes is not where we perhaps could have it. And uh, we've been in this series. We've been talking about the signs of the end times. We've been talking about the signs that God gave us. He said, look, you'll be able to look into your world and you'll be able to tell that I'm coming back soon. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at some of those signs and and we've been learning things about like a, a new way that the world is thinking of humanism where they they try to replace God with man. And then we learned about globalism and how our world is becoming very small and this message that is being spread around the world. We talked about all the different ways we've seen the nations reshape themselves, the, the rebirth of the Roman Empire coming back forward, the, the movement of people into Israel. All those kind of things are happening and they're setting the world stage. And pretty soon we're going to be talking about this incredible book that God wrote where he reveals to us what's happening in our world, where we can look at this book and we can say, wow. I can almost tell what's going to happen in the next however many years. Once this starts unfolding, we're going to be able to tell. And if you think about it, the book of Revelation is God just basically revealing to us his plans that have been in place and operational and functioning since the beginning of time. We talked about several weeks ago the the covenants of God and how they're just being played out in our world. And so if you haven't been able to catch the first three weeks of this series, I would really encourage you to go back online. And uh, spend some time sort of thinking about God and the world and where we're at. And one of the things that's interesting is that God not only reveals to us what's going on in the world, but he reveals himself to us personally. And what happens is we often come to a place like this and we open the Bible or we want to learn more about Jesus or we want to try to figure out if this whole thing makes any sense at all. And in the process, he reveals who he is to us. And we begin to understand that this isn't some intellectual pursuit. This is a movement of our heart. That our hearts are moving towards Jesus, towards God. And he's beginning to change us and shape us. And the more we trust him, the more we surrender, the more he transforms us. And and so we've been on this journey, all of us individually. and, And some of us have been on the journey for a long time. And others may not even know exactly where we're at. And some may be just trying to figure out who this God is or if he even exists. And it's all great. Because wherever you are, you are exactly where God says you are and where God wants you to be at the moment. And so if you're here tonight or you're watching online, I'm just really glad you're here. And I say that every week, but I really, really mean it. But we spent a lot of time getting ready to study Revelation. And there's something that I, I said that we needed to talk about before we open this book. That, that to open this book without dealing with the elephant in the room would be a mistake. You see, we, before we dive in, we need to really think about the thing that all of us are thinking about, but we're not really talking about. There's something about the end times that just kind of gnaws at us a little bit. There's something about the book of Revelation that makes us uncomfortable. Even as believers, even believers who trust Jesus, even those who know that God is going to take care of them, there's something about the end times that if we were honest, makes us uncomfortable. If we were really honest, it makes us question God. It takes us back to the Old Testament where we read where he wiped out populations of people. Where he killed Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament just because they didn't tithe correctly. And then we open the New Testament and we look in Revelation and we see the tribulation. And there's a part of us that just kind of gets nauseous. The elephant in the room, the unspoken concern is God's wrath. We read about these things like seal judgments and bowl judgments. And it takes us back to the plagues that God put onto Egypt. It seems harsh to us. It almost seems unloving to us. Honestly, at times it seems sinful to us. That God would take out that kind of anger onto his own creation. We don't like talking about it. But it's there. 
It's a constant theme throughout the Bible. There is a wrath of God that is as real as his mercy and his love. Can you bring judgment on those you love? Can wrath be poured out in a measured way that's just? If God is love, where does wrath come from? Yet this idea of our God pouring out his wrath. Well, truthfully, the churches today find it out of style. Almost embarrassing. How can we make sense of the book of Revelation if we don't first start looking and trying to understand the wrath of God? Yet the scriptures are very clear. The God that we worship is capable of great wrath and great anger. We're not talking about a little bit of anger. We're talking about in Revelation seven bowls. That's symbolic of a full and complete number. And they're not just put out, they're poured out. The bowls are full. They're running over. God's wrath will be poured out on his creation. It's clear in scripture it's going to happen. In all its sea boiling, thunder rolling, earthquake rattling fury. We're going to see the very kitchen of heaven brimming up bowls of wrath just to be poured out by angels on the face of the earth. And not only that, but when we read Revelation and we, t- we see in the Bible where God is going to pour out his wrath, there's hand clapping hallelujah coming from heaven. Wow. Like I said, there's an elephant in this room. God's wrath is coming. It's going to be horrible. Jesus will return to judge and punish. And yet the Bible said it's our blessed hope. That's a pretty big honking elephant we got to deal with. Most preachers and most people who write worship songs today treat the biblical truth of wrath much like the Victorians treated sex. It's there. We can allude to it, but let's don't talk about it because it's shameful. God is love. Therefore, we must not associate him with wrath. God is love. Therefore, he must be in. He must be indefinitely tolerant. He must just keep giving us grace and mercy and mercy. And there must never be a day when he finally says enough. Preachers have been very careful how they speak of the truth of the wrath of God. To some, there's a danger that we're just going to bring people to Jesus by scaring the hell out of them. To others, speaking the wrath of God is inconsistent in their mind with a God who's full of love and grace and mercy and walks around carrying the lost sheep. Wrath suggests to us a loss of self-control. An irrational outburst of anger that almost is immediately regretted as soon as it happens. It can seem like wounded pride, or it could just seem like somebody's got an anger issue. So what happens is when we start getting uncomfortable with God, instead of trying to explore more deeply and understand him more, we just try to clean him up. Try to explain away what the Bible really says. We, we do that when we read that Jesus says he's the only way. Or, or when we read the Bible and we see about him pouring out his wrath. We kind of shape the truth to make us feel better about him. And ourselves, because truthfully, we don't want to explain to our unbelieving friends the wrath part of this book. The Bible mentions the wrath of God over 500 times. It is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. You can't remove God's wrath from the Bible any more than you can remove his mercy. In fact, without understanding his wrath, you can't understand his mercy. And then what Jesus did on the cross makes no sense at all. Clearly, if Jesus went to the cross to take the wrath of God for us as our substitute, 
then the magnitude of God's wrath in some way shapes our view of what degree of sacrifice he made for us. It's when we fully grasp the weight and the depth and the full impact of God's wrath that we understand how, why we so desperately need to be saved from it. And how deep God's mercy is for us. In other words, if we explain away God's wrath, then we explain away the very reason that Jesus had to suffer on the cross. And by diminishing the wrath that God poured out on Jesus, we diminish the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And unfortunately, that's what's happened to many who sit in pews every week around our country. God's wrath has been glossed over. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And our sins don't seem so bad. And so we've embraced a faith that does not align with God's word and a faith that turns out to be very anemic and weak. In fact, we will learn that God can't be fully loving unless his wrath is fully manifested. Because love and wrath are intertwined and interdependent. Look at what God tells us through Paul. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. In order for love to be sincere, I need to develop in me a hate of things that are evil. For most Western Christians, hate is the last word that they would associate with love. But a love that doesn't contain a hatred of evil is not the love of which the Bible speaks. We, like Christ, are commanded to love everyone. And we do that. And Paul says that love needs to be genuine. Don't go around faking it. If you don't have a love for the people around you, pray that God will let you see them the way he sees you and the way he sees them. And he will make you, he will develop in you a love for other people. And it's genuine. But we must also genuinely hate evil. We have to have a hate for sin. We have to have a hate for Satan. We have to have a hate for what sin is doing in our world, what sin is doing to people, how Satan has deceived people. And all the while, we are going to literally love the hell out of them. In fact, true love, genuine love for someone else is not just a feeling, but a feeling that drives us to an action. There is no true love without wrath. True love must hate and take action against everything that is not loving. A husband who didn't respond to his wife's infidelity with a jealous anger would thereby demonstrate a lack of love or care for her. A parent who stood by passively while their child is being harmed or abused is not loving. Part of love is recognizing what's not love and attacking it. Standing for the right thing. Love demands not only an objection of what's wrong, but an action to stop it. We know this, right? I mean, if I'm passive or unaffected by the wrongs that are happening to people around me, then I'm unloving. We ask God all the time, how could someone have done that to another human? How could that be possible, God? How is that possible? Who would do such a thing? Who would allow such a thing? Where do those questions come from? Answer? They come from our love for other people. God, do you see what's happening to them? God, this isn't right. Something's wrong, God. And unless God detests sin with evil and great loathing, he can't be a God of love. In our very uprising about wrongdoings to other people, it demonstrates our love for them. Love and anger go hand in hand. Part of love is resisting, speaking out, and acting against acts of unlove. 
Yet for some reason, when it comes to God, we expect him to be loving. In fact, we demand it. But when his wrath is poured out, when he responds to the things that are unjust and unloving, we reject him as out of control, as angry. We spend hours of our lives crying out to God to do something. Stop the hate, stop the war, stop the murder, stop the rape, stop the molestation of children, stop starvation, stop racial hatred, stop bigotry, stop intolerance, stop whatever you want to put in the blank. We cry out for justice. We plead for things to be right. And then we see God patiently holding back his justice. And we say, and he's not doing anything. He's just waiting. He's waiting for a day in the future, he says. He's waiting for those who are sinning to confess and accept Jesus so he doesn't have to pour out his wrath on them. His patience is another expression of his love. The very fact that he's not zapping people with lightning the minute they do bad things proves he's a loving God. And yet there's a day on the horizon, the Bible tells us, when he will from his throne cry out, enough. I've stood by and watched enough. I've stood by and heard people crying out for justice enough. I have so many victims in the world who demand my action and my justice. The time is over. I'm no longer holding back. Revelation 6, 9. Then he opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they'd borne. So people on earth had stood up as Christians and been martyred for it. And their souls are now in heaven at the throne. And they're crying out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God literally tells them, I'm going to hold back my justice. Just hold on. I'm going to take care of it, but not right now because more people need to be martyred. And when the total number of people who need to be martyred are martyred, I will avenge what happened to you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. And they increase more and more. And they've been increasing over human history. And God has just been holding them back. And they're getting higher and higher and higher. And at some point, God's going to say enough. And the full wrath of God will be poured out on the earth. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and then the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God tells us, look, over and over in the Bible, he tells us there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day coming when I'm no longer going to hold back. There's going to be a day coming when my justice, my holiness, and my wrath is going to be poured out on my creation. It's going to be poured out on those who rejected what my son did. Unfair, you say? Think about all he's done. He had to punish sin, so he reveals his plan to rescue us. He has to punish sin and pour out the appropriate measure of wrath and justice, or he's an unholy, unrighteous God. 
sins and our actions demand that a righteous God do something. Because remember, love is doing something about that which is evil. But he knew we would never survive standing in the full wrath of what he would bring to us. He knew that. So he came to earth himself. And he said, okay, I'll go to the cross. I'll take the wrath. Pour it out. Give it all to me. I'll take it all for everybody. For the sins they've done in the past, for the ones they haven't even thought about. Go ahead, God. Pour it out. Because you're a just God. And I'm a perfect sacrifice. So you just pour it out on me. I'll take it. And all we have to do is believe and trust in what he did on the cross for us. That he literally took the wrath of God for our sin. Not our sins collectively, which he did, but your sins, your individual sins. The ones that deserve God's wrath, he took them on the cross. And for those who believe in him, they will never experience the wrath of God. But before we go too far into this, I want to put out there a sobering truth. No one experiences the wrath of God unless they decide to step over the dead body of Jesus and say what he did on the cross doesn't matter. Nobody. And yet, as crazy as it seems, that's exactly what most people are doing. Why? Because they're forcing Jesus to fit into their box. They're forcing Jesus to be a God that does what they can understand. They're forcing Jesus to be the kind of God they would be with the kind of wrath they would have. They're trying to limit an unlimited God to their humanism. They're only seeing what their limited minds can think of. And because of that, they're missing all the supernatural things about God. And because they can't see God supernaturally, they don't understand his wrath. You see, we often think of God in human terms. And when we don't understand him, too often we see him as some kind of flawed human. The problem with today's theology and much of the preaching is that the wrath of God, it's not that it's exaggerated. It's that it's muted. How does that happen? You remember in week one when I talked about humanism? How it's infiltrating the church. How humanists, if they're forced to acknowledge a God exists, they see him as a God that serves man rather than the other way around. The idea that man would be judged and held accountable to a holy God is unacceptable. So they and the churches they've influenced teach a God that is here to serve human purposes. So it makes sense that any God who's going to be accepted in our society today has to respect human rights, accept my view of the truth, Punish only those people I think really should be punished. Holds no one accountable. Allows people to set their own standard of truth. Gives unlimited second chances over and over and over. And gives us warm, comforting, sentimental feelings every time we think about him. And that he does exactly what we want God to do. And we've got him in our box. And when he doesn't fit in our box, we start trying to explain. We start trying to change him or clean him up or get you to look somewhere else. Don't look over here at his wrath. That's not supposed to be in my box. So from a humanist perspective, the God of the Old Testament has some serious anger issues. He seems to soften a bit in Jesus, but then when he returns at Armageddon and tribulation, he's out of control again. Do you know what the sad part of humanism really is? It's that you're only limited to your perspective and understanding of what God can be. Without acknowledging the supernatural, 
without asking God to show you in the spirit what he's like and who he is, you'll never see him any more than you can see him as a human. You miss out on the incredible things that God reveals, the supernatural things that he saves for his children to see him in a new, fresh way. You miss out to who he really is because you are not open to who he's revealed himself to be in the scriptures. In fact, the Bible says it's folly to those who don't know the Lord. And sadly, humanists who believe they can be their own God and and fit God in a box, never see or understand the supernatural part of God. And as a result, they don't understand his mercy and the depth of his love and his wrath. Without the Spirit of God to teach us and to guide us, when we hear of God's wrath, all we can think of is God's wrath in human terms. From the human perspective, when we see wrath, it's out of control. It's destructive. It's impulsive. It has no restraints. It's unloving, unplanned, unmeasured. And the goal is to totally destroy whatever you're pouring your wrath out on. That's how humans see wrath. Human wrath is often inappropriate, unwarranted, unjust, and vicious. It comes when we're least loving. And it's poured out on those that we have absolutely no regard for. That's human wrath. So the question that we have to answer, the elephant in the room, is do I have the wrong view of the wrath of God? Or do I have the wrong view of God? Or both? If you struggle with the idea of God's wrath, let me just share with you, you probably struggle with both. Because when you fully grasp the character, the nature, the holiness of God... His wrath makes total sense. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Let's look at a story in the Old Testament about something God told the prophet Nahum regarding the city of Nineveh. Nahum 1 verse 2. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. Those are mountains. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. (laughs) Wait a minute. We just went from, and now he says the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Wow. God's off the chain here, right? I mean, did God actually do these things to Nineveh? There's no city today called Nineveh. What we're really reading is how God felt about sin. Did God lash out in anger and wrath? Did he, did he just lash out? I mean, did he just finally lose it? Does anger just gradually build and you just couldn't stand it anymore? And boom, one day, Nineveh, toast, done. No, that's human anger. That's human wrath. God's wrath in the Bible is never self-indulgent never irritable. It's never set off like a short fuse. His wrath is right. It's a necessary reaction to moral evil. God is holy and cannot stand sin because he's holy. That's what he's expressing here. You see, God expressing wrath is not like a human losing his temper. God does not flash with anger and take some unsuspecting nearby angel and throw him across the universe and go, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I lost it. No. He doesn't react without thinking. He doesn't lash out. 
Were you ever told to count to 10 before you really lose it? It's good advice. When God's anger, he counts for centuries. He holds back his anger and wrath. He contemplates his response. He makes sure his response is measured, that it's appropriate, that it's poured out on the correct people. He never makes a mistake in exercising his wrath. In fact, it is a correct expression of his holiness and his justice. His wrath is never mysterious, never irrational, never spiteful, never vindictive. It's predictable because it's a response to injustice, law-breaking, and evil. And that alone. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay, so God's love is measured. Frank, have you read the Old Testament? I mean, Adam and Eve sinned and brought death on everybody. He gets mad at the world and wipes them out with a flood. Every time his people worship idols or intermarry or do something else he doesn't like, he punishes them. With regard to enemies, he seems to have no regard. He just wipes them out, including mothers and children. He totally destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent plague after plague on Egypt. He allowed the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians to conquer, murder, rape his chosen people. God's got a problem. He needs anger management. He needs to spend more time in charm school. Sure seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, that's really what we fear as Christians, right? That we're going to talk to somebody about God, and they're going to go, what about that God in the Old Testament so angry? How do we reconcile this incredible love that we know God has, that we've experienced in our relationship with Him, with the wrath that we read about in the Bible? It makes no sense to us. If we're looking at it from the human perspective... But what if what was happening was supernatural? What if we don't understand because in our humanness we have a limited view of God? What if we need to have God show us something deeper and new about Him that might change our perspective of His wrath? What if we actually allowed the Spirit to teach us who He really is? What if we took Him out of the box? And we said, okay, God, I'm going to quit trying to define you. I see that you're a God of anger. I see it's as much a part of you as your mercy. Could you help me understand that? This is a line that's not crossed by humanists. God can't have any attribute I can't explain. Yet for those who have the Spirit of God in them, that's where the journey into the incredible begins. God reveals some things about him to us as humans, but most of the deep secrets of God are revealed to us in the spirit and saved for those who are believers in Jesus. God saves the deeper part of who he is for those who trust him and follow him. 1 Corinthians 2.6 Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Don't miss this. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God declared before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's only by being spiritually discerned and open to what God wants to teach us that we can fully understand God's holiness. And you see, the reason we struggle with God's wrath is because we don't understand His holiness. See, because if we don't see Him as holy, and we don't see Him in His full holiness, 
then sin's not that big of a deal. And if sin's not that big of a deal, then his reaction to sin is overblown. We struggle with the idea of God's wrath because we don't understand his holiness. Jesus came to earth as the Messiah, knowing that he had one mission, to die on the cross for you and me. Not just to die on the cross, but to suffer and die. Why did he suffer? Because he knew full well the magnitude of the wrath of God. He knew full well what was stored up for him. He knew full well the number of people who had sinned, whose sins had not been avenged, and he knew that he would have to take the wrath of God for the sins of the world. For every sin ever committed, both present, past, and future, they were building up. God had a huge dam of water full of the sins of the world and the justice that they require, and he's waiting for Jesus to get on the cross so he can pour it out on him. That's what the cross is all about. The only thing holding back that moment was God's love and his mercy and his grace. But because of his holiness and because of his righteousness, one day his wrath has to be released. He couldn't ignore what had been happening. He couldn't just look the other way. He would be an unjust, just, or unjust judge. And so on that afternoon, when Jesus was on the cross, God took all of his wrath, every ounce of it, and he poured it out on Jesus. Why is that important? Jesus paid it all. He took the full wrath of the Father for us. The full weight, the full magnitude, the full glory. The fury, unleashed wrath. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that all man's sin has been paid. The punishment has been poured out. There is nothing left. The Father has distributed all the wrath for all the sins for all the people of all the world. The Father has been justified. He is righteous. He is just. And we've been punished. And Jesus took it for us. In the Bible, we call that word propitiation. It's a big word, and it just means that what happened on the cross, Jesus did it all. He took every ounce, every drop of the supernatural wrath of God about every injustice in the world. And Jesus took it as our substitute because it should have been poured out on us. Why is that so important? Because it changed the mission of Jesus. It changed who he is. You see, the Jesus that was here the first time is a very different manifestation of Jesus who's coming back the second time. We have to understand this before we get into Revelation. After Jesus went to the cross, after he was glorified, after he went back to the Father and then returned back to earth and appeared to people, look at what he says. Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, Look, last time I was here, I did what the Father told me to do. I was under his direction. But now, now all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And because Jesus now has that authority, when he returns, he's the one that judges. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. John 5, 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5.26, For the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. When Jesus comes back the second time, He's coming back to judge. He's coming back on a different mission. It's no longer a salvation mission, although that's a part of it. His primary mission is to judge the world and distribute the wrath of God. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. When Jesus comes back the second time, every person on earth, in heaven, under earth will recognize that he is God. The first time he came, he was a helpless and dependent baby. When he returns, he is fully God, fully empowered, fully glorified. And because we have humanized Jesus in his glory, we don't really appreciate his holiness. You see, without a full appreciation of how holy he is, we can't really understand how offensive not doing what he says is. Does that make sense? I mean, if we don't see his holiness, then our sins don't seem like that bad of a deal. It's only when we recognize the value of something that we appreciate what it means when it's defaced. Suppose I told you, let me give you an example. Suppose I told you I was out in the parking lot, I backed up, I ran into another car. Silly me. I don't know, I wasn't looking. And I put a dent in another car. What's your first question? Was it my car? Right? Was it my car? No, it wasn't your car. Okay. What's your next question? What kind of car did you hit? Well, if I told you it was a 1971 Ford Pinto with dents all over it and three wheels and a lot of damage, you'd say, oh, that's not a big deal. Just 20 bucks plus whatever they got in the gas and you're done. But what if I told you it was a 2017 Rolls-Royce Sweptail? that's valued at over $13 million. All of a sudden, this is a big deal. Now think about the response of each of the owners when they found out it hit their car, right? The Pinto person, yeah, you're like number 600, don't worry about it. The Mercedes person, do you realize the value of what you've defaced? Do you understand what you've done? Do you understand just how valuable this is and what you've done to it? Look at what you've done to it. If you can understand this, then you can understand the wrath of God. You see, the problem is we think of God's holiness as a pinto and not a, not a Rolls Royce. Because we undervalue His glory... We undervalue his holiness. We undervalue who he really is. We undervalue his purity. We undervalue his righteousness. And because of that, we don't really value how damaging what we've done in our sins is. If we could just once see him in his glory. See how pure he is. How holy he is. How perfect he is. How glorious He is. How loving He is. If we could just see that just once, then we would begin to understand how offensive our sins are to that holiness. He is so holy and so gloriously perfect that it would be out of character for Him to ignore sin that taints who He is. And totally in his character to hate what it does. His wrath is a loving and righteous response to anything that keeps us from his holiness. In essence, his holiness is manifested in his wrath. And his wrath is an expression of his love. 
if we could just grasp Jesus' holiness, then we begin to understand how sin is so contrary to who he is and so not part of what he had planned for us. And we would understand that he would have to pour his wrath out on sin because it's, it's not what he wants us to have. It's not what we're supposed to be. He's so incredibly good that he has to incredibly hate what's bad. He's so pure. He's so perfect. He's so beyond anything we've ever experienced as a human. Sometimes we try to fit his holiness and his righteousness and impurity into a box. We think of God as just a really good person, a sinless person. But his second coming is nothing like his first. When Jesus returns to the earth, he's going to be fully glorified, fully empowered and completely divine. He will be in his glory. The first time Jesus was fully God and fully man, the second time is all God. He's going to be returning as God in his full, undiminished, explosive glory. Don't look for some baby in a manger. Look for God in his glory. One time he gave us a sneak preview. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face altered, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Peter would later write, for when he received honor and glory from the father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves, Peter said, heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We've seen him as God. And notice that what was spiritually revealed to them on the mountain that day. They climbed the mountain thinking that they were following this man. They came down from the mountain knowing that they had seen the glory and holiness of God. They were instantly transformed. From men who had a human understanding of God to men who now spiritually understood who God was. It's as if Jesus pulled off his humanness and just showed them his full glory, his full holiness, and his full righteousness. And when Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of that glory on their faces, they fell and worshiped him. When all of heaven sees his glory, they fall and worship him too. The human response to supernatural holiness is always to fall on your face and worship. Their response is the same response every human has ever had in the presence of the supernatural. They bow down and worship, recognizing that they don't belong there. That what's going on is too pure and too holy and too wonderful for them to be there. They immediately know they don't belong. Because the holiness of God is so overwhelmingly incredible. Just like when Isaiah found himself in the presence of God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I don't belong here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I dwell in the midst of other people who are like me. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have seen his holiness, and I don't belong here. People arrogantly all the time say, well, when I die, I'm going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to tell him all the good things I've done. I'm going to explain to him how he should be nice to me because I'm a good person. And if I had a problem, it's because he created me that way. I'm just going to explain it to him. I'll be good. And I'm thinking, you're out of your mind. You're going to be on your face. You're going to be shaking like my dog during a thunderstorm. You're going to be unable to speak. You're going to lose bodily functions. Let's just leave it there. You're going to be begging for mercy and maybe for the first time realizing the futility of this humanist view you've been holding on to. 
No human stands in the glory of God with any form of composure. I don't care who you are. We would all lose it. And just like Isaiah and everyone else who's been in the presence of God's holiness, we are immediately aware that we don't belong there. And what's keeping us from there is our sin. Because we're people of unclean lips too. At one point, John was taken into the Spirit to see Jesus in heaven. I want you to think about the Jesus that you might be picturing that's going to come back. Maybe you see him as uh, a man with flowing hair and a robe carrying a lamb. Then I turned to the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, guess what he did? I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. It's only by experiencing Him in the Spirit that we realize the magnitude of His glory and holiness. And in the presence of His holiness, we understand that our sins never belong there. That our sins don't even belong in the same galaxy with His holiness. He is so holy that we begin to understand just how offensive our sins are to Him. How offensive our sins are and can't be in His presence. He's so holy that we realize we have to hate our sins too. That He has to pour out His wrath on them because they're so not who He is. To do anything less would diminish His holiness. Right now in heaven... Let's look at his presence. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. That's the Jesus that's coming back. Yet we want to picture him as our human friend who came just like he did last time, loving, forgiving, full of mercy, full of grace, maybe carrying a lamb, maybe sitting down with children in his lap. Maybe pointing us to the right or left based on how we've been, but certainly being nice to us, giving the benefit of the doubt to us, grading on a curve perhaps. That dream is nowhere in the Bible. Let me remind you of the Jesus that's returning to earth. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. He will tread the winepress of the fury of Almighty God. The Bible's crystal clear. Jesus came the first time to save the world. He's returning in his full glory, full power to judge the world and satisfy the wrath of God 
upon those who refuse to accept what he did on the cross. It's important to understand that the final exam is not based on the number of your sins. It's not based on the number of hours you've served in church. It's not based on attendance at church, good things you've done for people, money you've donated to people, how good you think you are, knowledge you have about Jesus in the Bible. The only thing Jesus is going to be evaluating is whether you acknowledge that your sins deserve the wrathful response of a holy God. And that you trusted Jesus to stand in your place and take that wrath for you. If you've trusted Jesus to take God's wrath for you, then there's no wrath left for you. He paid it all. It's what we call propitiation. But if you reject what Jesus did on the cross, the full wrath of God is headed your way. It's so clear in Scripture. It would be completely unholy for God not to punish you for your sins and not to have somebody take your place. To ignore the pleas of all those people that you've hurt, to ignore their call for justice, it would be so unloving and so unjust that it would be sinful. God's wrath has to be poured out. And if you don't trust Jesus to stand in your place, please hear clearly. You better get ready for your own experience on your own cross. Because the full weight of God's wrath is on your horizon. And I could candy coat it. I could try to make it sound better. But that would be unloving, uncaring, and humanistic. Once we gain an understanding of the holiness and wonder of God, then we can begin to see and understand that his wrath is not even close to what we see in human wrath. Human wrath is motivated by hate. God's wrath is motivated by love. Human wrath is focused on destruction. God's wrath is focused on salvation. If I can get you to see where you are, if I can make your life just miserable enough, maybe, just maybe, you'll turn back and trust me. Wrath is His love in action against sin. The wrath of God is meant to bring people back to God. But not everybody's going to be brought back. Not everybody's going to respond. There's going to be people who continue to reject God. And they're going to reject His mercy and His love and His presence. And they're eventually going to get exactly what they deserve. They're going to have the total absence of God's presence and His mercy and His love in their life. And when John wrote Revelation, he wasn't writing it as a depressing book. He was writing it to all the victims of the world saying, your day's coming. The justice you've cried out for, he's coming back. He's going to get justice for you. He's going, he's heard your cries. He's desperately ready. He's been waiting to come back. And all the victims over all the world cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. God's wrath does not come when He's the most angry, the most unloving. It's not anger. It's not bitter. It's a loving Father who looks at the victims of the world and finally says, Enough. When we read the newspaper about a drunk driver who runs over a family, we want God to do something. When we read about sexual predators exploiting children or young ladies being sold into sex trade or suicide bombers bombing innocent people or martyrs being beheaded by ISIS and we try to understand God's response to the Holocaust, the list goes on and on and on. God, are you going to punish them? Are you ever going to do it? Your word says vengeance is yours. When is it coming? Are you going to bring justice for these people? Are you going to let people get away with this, God? The forces in our world that do these things will not be allowed to continue to do them forever. God's wrath will be poured out. Seven complete bowls of it. Filled to the brim and running over, all about to be poured out on the water that flows through humanity. Not like human wrath that seeks destruction. 
but rather divine rest that tries to move people towards a loving restoration of a relationship with God. In the Revelation, we're going to see over and over and over that God pours out his wrath and then looks at his people and says, do you trust me yet? Look, this is going to happen. Do you trust me yet? And what we're going to find is when his wrath is fully poured out, it's people who have, are in absolute rejection of who he is. God's wrath in the Bible is never erratic. It's never self-indulgent. It's never irritable. It's never morally inferior. It's right, necessary, and a reaction to moral evil. The wrath of God is his response to the cries of the people. It's God fulfilling his promise to all who've been victims. For those who've been abused and murdered and molested and rejected and falsely accused. All those who've been hurt by the sins of others. It is a loving God keeping his promise. And yet it's not just blind rage. It's reasonable. It's willed. It's measured. And it's an appropriate response. At the same time, his love is unconditional. He loves those that his holiness demands he punishes. There's nothing intrinsically opposite of love and wrath. They go together. God and his holiness must punish those who worship other gods. He's that kind of God. Finally, and most importantly, and I'll close. God's wrath is completely our choice. The reality is it's something we choose. We can either experience the favor of God or we can stand in the wrath of God. In the Bible, God tells us that those who wanted to choose sin, God gave them over to their sin. He basically allowed them to keep doing it so they would see the futility of it, hoping that when they get to the end of themselves, like the prodigal son, they would turn and come back to him. The Bible says he gave them over to their sins. It doesn't say he gave up on them. And by experiencing the wrath of God, by experiencing God's them, allowing them to go down a path that's harmful to them, they begin to experience what it means to be separated from God, and maybe, just maybe, they'll turn back to Him. The wrath of God only awaits those who've chosen it. And like I said, the only people that will ever experience His wrath are those who've stepped over the dead body of Jesus and told Jesus that what He did doesn't matter to them. The essence of God's wrath is to give people what they've chosen. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God doesn't give up on sinners. Romans 5.9, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're going to soon be unpacking Revelation. God's love for us has been revealed through the prophets, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. He tells us what's going to happen. He tells us what his wrath looks like because he doesn't ever want us to experience it. Think about how loving that is. I'm going to give you a book and I'm going to show you how horrible my wrath is going to be. Not because I want to scare you, but because I want you to understand how important it is to avoid it. How do I know how horrible my wrath is? Well, you see, this isn't the first time I've had to pour it out. I had to pour it out on my son on the cross. My wrath is horrible. It's ugly. It's terrible. No human should ever have to go through that. So I created a way that you wouldn't. I don't ever want to see, God says, anybody have to stand in my wrath again. What happened on Golgotha was horrible. God has done everything he can possibly do to give us some other option. His love is unconditional. He told us what would happen through the prophets. He told us what would happen through the scriptures. He came to earth and told us what would happen. He left the Holy Spirit so that we would know what happened. He gives us pictures of what's about to happen. And he's just saying, please don't make me do this to you. 
It's his wrath that fully expresses his love. You can't separate them and you can't gloss over them. Second Peter 3.8 Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wishing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The cross is all about God's love, but it's also about His wrath. That's why Jesus told us to make sure we remember the sacrifice. In a few moments, we're going to be taking communion. And when we take communion tonight, I want you to think about not just that he went to the cross and died for you, but he took God's wrath for you. He looked at his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he lifted up the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so all those who follow Jesus, who surrendered to Jesus, are commanded by Jesus to take communion. And he says, every time you take communion, you proclaim my death until I come. Tonight, when you take communion, if you're a believer in Christ, I'm going to invite you to the communion tables. If you're not yet, that's totally cool. Just sit back and relax. Think about what we've been talking about. But for those who've surrendered to Jesus, it's time for us to spend some time remembering what he really did on the cross. And remembering that it was the wrath of God that he justified. And that that wrath of God is a measure of his love. And that it's his desire that nobody has to go through what Jesus went through. Let's pray. God, I thank you that when we don't understand you, it's because the issue is with us and not you. I thank you, God, that when we see something like your wrath and your anger and we don't really understand it because we really don't have a picture of who you really are. And then through the spirit, you show us your holiness and we get a glimpse like those who are on top of the mountain at just how pure and how holy you are. And we begin to see just how horrible our sin is and what it must do to you. So, God, I don't know all of us. We just need to spend some time really thinking about you thinking about what you did on the cross, thinking about where we are. Some need to surrender to you right now. You just need to give it up. You need to tell Jesus that you don't understand everything, but you understand he paid the price for you. And that you surrender to him as your savior because you know your sins need to be punished and you know a righteous God is not going to look the other way. Others of us just need to remember why we're here and what that sacrifice was about. And God, if we have downplayed your wrath to try to make you seem better or nicer, forgive us. Help us to see you the way you really are. We thank you, God, that you kept us from your wrath. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.